Hello, listener. Welcome back. I'm Carl Anker, and it's another episode of Talk of the Devils, the Manchester United podcast from The Athletic. As ever, I'm joined by the best United partnership since the days of York and Cole, or at least since Rooney and Zaha. Yes, <laughs> that little laugh you heard there was The Athletic's Manchester United writer, Laurie. Well, Laurie, which one? Rooney or Zaha? Yeah, I'm trying to think. Maybe for looks, you know, uh, Rooney, uh, and and for footballing ability, none of them, because I was absolutely awful. So uh, there we have it. I don't know if, if I've just slandered uh, Monsieur Rooney, uh, you know, too much there. But yeah, uh, nice, nice to be uh, associated with uh, such pristine partnerships. Uh, Mr. Whitwell's strike partner is the man who's taught us about jibbers, the price of stamps, and the value of Roy Keane in the '99 season. He's also unite we stand at, uh, and contributing writer to the Athletic. It's Mr. Andy Mitten. Andy, how you doing? Hi, Carl. Okay, mate. Hope you are too. Don't forget, you can enjoy The Athletic for free with a 90-day trial by going to theathletic.com slash manunitedpod. That's theathletic.com slash manunitedpod. Right then, gentlemen. Um, it appears we are entering Project Restart as the Premier League possibly ramps up returns, ramps up plans for resuming the season. Um, Laurie, there's been a lot of conversation amongst English football and a little bit on the continent about how uh, certain Premier League teams could be back in training soon is there any news on what Manchester United are doing right now yeah well I think United aren't at that stage yet I know that Arsenal have, have announced plans for players to go back um, in you know, obviously socially distant uh, groups um, sort of more professional way than bobbing down the local park as, as a few Spurs players and obviously Jose Mourinho did um, there's actually that's I don't think that's necessarily a new thing at some clubs I think clubs have been doing that for a little bit where they've had perhaps one or two players in at a time for United it's it's not like that it's it's pretty much been shut down apart from you know Steve McNally the doctor obviously talking about him going into to Carrington um, I think there's been a, one or two players going in for a bit of medical treatment um, but to be honest there's actually a few players back in their homeland I'm led to believe so you know in terms of United actually going back into training anytime soon I don't think that would be the case I think they're obviously looking at the government um, guidelines and, and thinking that you know coronavirus needs to be taken extremely seriously, and albeit that you know the football once it restarts will be their priority. I think they sort of are aware that the situation is you know a difficult one, you know for society, let alone uh, football. So I think they they're, they're a little bit perhaps um, more of, of the opinion that they need to be at home, sort of doing the fitness work, you know, in, in groups, um, you know, on Zoom for example, rather than actually in person. It's something of a moving target. The returns of football. Obviously, there's talk about the Bundesliga returning behind closed doors. Andy, you've gone to more Manchester United games than anyone on this podcast. Um, how would you feel about the Premier League returning behind closed doors? Would you think that's good for the fans watching at home? I think it's needs must. I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago and it was quite balanced. And I said that I'd been in Austria for the last game and I didn't like the experience. Football, it just didn't feel right without fans at all. My background from doing a fanzine, I'm very, I'm a fan of fans, if you like. And I was quite surprised by the reaction. I felt that most people would say behind closed doors football is better than nothing. But actually it was 50-50. A lot of people were saying, um, no, we should wait until fans are allowed back in the stadiums. I don't think that's going to happen. United certainly don't think that's going to happen. They think it's going to be behind closed doors first for for many reasons. Uh, And one would be to stop clubs going bust because it might be next year before fans are allowed back into stadiums but I take the point that uh, from from the hardcore fans and a lot of them would read the sort of stuff that I do uh, they they want to see their team and I think most people who don't go to games might find that quite a strange attitude 
but but that's how it is they're entitled to their opinion and uh, uh, there are a significant number of people who do not think football should be played uh, until it's safe for the fans to get back into the stadium i don't think that will happen i totally get the argument and and as a fan it's just nowhere near as interesting um when when there are no fans in the stadium i've been speaking to a lot of footballers actually and most of them are like yeah uh we're expecting it to be behind closed doors and i'm on about people from the premier league right the way down and spoke to one last week and most of them are like okay this is how it's going to be but one of them said he would have actually preferred it because he wouldn't have people moaning at him during the game and he could just concentrate on his game so that was quite an, that was quite an interesting take and, and quite a brave one um but you appreciate the honesty i think Behind closed doors is where it's going to be, in Germany, in Spain, in Italy, and, and in England as well. Laurie, I've just been going through the Athletic website, as I do every Tuesday morning, because you've normally written something fresh for me. I see you've got a new piece there about Michael Carrick and Kieran McKenna and uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's backroom team. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, as part of a, a sort of a reader mailbag that I did a couple of weeks ago, um, the question of what what United's co- coaches are doing behind the scenes came up, particularly Carrick and McKenna. It's been something I've been thinking about doing for for a little bit because I'm sort of hearing good things, and you know, you try and ask people what the coaching like, what what the training's like, and I can see certain things on the pitch that they clearly have worked on, you know, behind the scenes, and and certainly they think that the uh, training camps that they've had, you know, in Dubai or Marbella have, have have worked really well for them, and they've come out of those you know training camps with with good form um so Carrick and McKenna are the two guys that effectively lead training um obviously they're both young they've come from different um backgrounds really obviously Carrick with one of the most um sort of glittering careers in Premier League history um won everything there is to win as a as a, as a club player Kieran McKenna different side of things he had to retire from football at 23 with a, a hip injury um whilst he was playing for Tottenham um but he's, he's therefore attacked his coaching badges a lot earlier so um there's actually a, a quote from Carrick where he's sort of talking about McKenna um being a teacher to him in that regard um he's obviously got much more experience even though he's younger and hasn't got the playing history um so it's an interesting dynamic between the two of them um obviously Carrick is, is fresh into you know sort of coaching uh, a couple of years ago McKenna's had a, a lot longer run at it but Carrick has that sort of natural authority of being a player that you know can show uh, a skill and, and, and can sort of say you know this is what I did in these certain certain situations so um and I just sort of spoke to quite a few people about what they thought of, of the, that setup what they thought about the the two guys themselves um and, and obviously you, you, you do United there is scrutiny there is criticism so at times this season when United haven't been playing well you know how are these guys good enough you know are they respected enough by the players Um, I certainly think you had that question with Kieran McKenna who um, came from the under 18s when he was at United, promoted by Jose Mourinho, when Rui Faria left, and you you did have I think some some senior players debating, you know who is this guy that's that's now coaching us? Um, and I spoke to a player who who admitted to me not not from United, but that that basically said I would find it perhaps difficult if you know he didn't have the charisma, if he didn't have you know a certain bit about him really, you know to take instruction from him, you know because he didn't have that you know coaching vast coaching experience or that playing career that obviously Carrick had so it is you know, maybe that's a brutal assessment but also it's quite an honest one I think and probably true for, for a few footballers so it's a but McKenna has had to work past that and um, and I think he actually you hear him speak and, and you hear what other people say about him he's extremely diligent um, I spoke to some people that were on his pro license course including one manager who said very good attention to detail very motivated asked a lot of questions you know had opinions is, a, is has a strong 
sense of himself so he, he isn't afraid to fall out with people if they don't um, subscribe don't work hard enough um, which I thought was really interesting um, so uh, yeah that's kind of what the piece is about so I've probably given away loads there but uh, <laughs> I, would ad- I would advise people to go and read it all in its entirety because th- there's a few little nuggets that I've left out it's an interesting setup at United uh, Andy you've met Michael Carrick a few times is that correct yeah, I've, I've followed Michael's career. I've spoke to him lots of times, and I, I'd agree with a lot of what Laurie said. And I think the timing is very important. So we're talking now where things have looked pretty good for Manchester United since that home defeat against Burnley. Had we had this conversation at the end of January, I think it would have been viewed through a different prism. And uh, my, Michael Carrick is respected by players. They listen to him. Individuals, Fred, for example, has really thrived under Michael's guidance. Um, Kieran, as Laurie said, that diligence, that attention to detail, those fresh ideas. They don't players don't want training to be routine all the time. They want they want to be tested, they want to be pushed. And those are the two on the training ground. And I watched a couple of their sessions pre-season in Perth. And maybe I shouldn't have been allowed to watch and stay as long as I did, but I was very interested how what what, what they were doing. And they were putting out um, Ollie's ideas and little things, you know, Ollie wanted a midfielder arriving in the box um, to, to give United another string to their uh, attacking play. But if we were talking at the end of January, well, what sort of things would Laurie and I have been hearing when we speak to people? I was hearing you need someone more experienced in there. You need someone like Carlos Quieros, someone who can be a real tough lad to the point where the players don't actually like him but they respect him because he's very good at, at what he does and that all melts away when the team start winning so when the team are not winning you start hearing calls for they need a more experienced coach they need a sporting director and that all just melts away when the results start improving and and that has happened and that helps the two michaels I think they are up and coming. They're working at a very, very high level. So it is a challenge for both of them because some of the players they're with are the top players in the world in theory, certainly off reputation, if not always from performances. But I think the last couple of months have been good for them. Their ideas are coming across. And I'd love to see them thrive and become more experienced and more successful in what they were doing. It was bold to bring Michael Carrick in. It was bold to bring McKenna through. And I think you're starting to see some of the fruits of their labour. Laurie, one thing I want to ask you is how does Mike feed, in, feed into all this? So if, if Carrick and McKenna are, are, are doing the training on a day-to-day basis and Ole Gunnar is sort of the figurehead, how does Feeling feed in? Yeah, I think Feeling has a more uh, a broader view of, of United as a club. Obviously, he's been there, he's experienced winning titles with United, he's, he's won the Champions League with United. So he's, he's been at the club for a long, long time and he's, he's you know, very close to Sir Alex Ferguson. So he knows what it's like to be managing that kind of club in that kind of environment. So I think he takes a broader view. I'm told that, you know, say he, he watches training, he might just interject and suggest that the tempo needs raising. You know, he can he can sort of see those kind of moments in, in training when um, something needs to just have a bit more energy and ed- edge to it. So he might do stuff like that. But also, I think he takes a broader view and, you know, he, he works with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer on, you know, the recruitment side of things. Um, you, you perhaps, you know, we talk about director of football or sporting director or whatever you want to call it. And I probably will do a piece on this at some point in the future. But, um, you know, perhaps he is the closest thing United 
United have to, to that kind of football-sided you know view on on it anyway. You know, obviously Edward Wood and Matt Judge uh, are responsible for the kind of negotiations, but you know, so so I think he takes Mike Phelan takes a, a more you know a uh, holistic view of what you know co- coaching training at, at Manchester United should be and also there is Martin Pert as well who, who's in the mix who's also a very good sort of younger coach as well um, and sort of part of that is you know you've got you know guys there that are fit that are you know f- physically you know uh, capable so that kind of conveys a good feeling around around the squad I think um, but it is interesting what Andy was saying about the, the need for someone more experienced and, and obviously as he was saying you know if, the, if this had been after the Burnley game when it was 2-0 loss at home and, and it was horrific atmosphere at Old Trafford and, and it was toxic really you probably would be getting a different opinion from people um, but I think that is where feeling can be very useful um, I actually did a really good um, talk on a webinar on um, a couple of weeks ago raising money for NHS charities where he, he spoke about his theories and, and kind of what he provides and he was just talking about how he can guide younger coaches through in terms of telling them to be true to themselves be their own voice because if you're not players quickly work that out uh, and won't be having you so I think he's there to provide that kind of advice as well without necessarily leading the training every single day it sounds to me as if this is the closest we've had to a Man United that operated similar to on Alex Ferguson where you've sort of got your your head coach who doesn't take training every day and then a setup around him of multiple coaches yeah, there's definite similarities and obviously Phelan was there under Ferguson so he saw how it was all working and one thing that interests me was when Ollie Gunnar got the Manager of the Year, Manager of the Month award when he'd just been to the club, he was adamant that he didn't want to be pictured alone. He wanted to be pictured alongside his coaches. There was five of them, including Emilio, the, the goalkeeping coach then. So it was Michael, uh, Michael and Kieran and Ollie. And the club's media, they use the pictures of all the coaches because Ollie was like, we are together, we're a group, we're working as a team together. Of course, when the the, the newspapers used the, the image, it was all Ollie Gunnar. And actually, when Ollie got the United job, one thing that was said to him, that, no, let's make it clear, you are the manager now. You're the man who takes the responsibility and obviously gets a much higher salary than the coaches working around and under him. But there's a good team there. And underneath them, you've got youth coaches and they, they're delighted because they see a lot of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. He comes to watch the kids and there's a, there's a good team spirit there. And somebody said to me about Ole Gunnar, he lets people get on with the job. He puts specialists in and he bows to their knowledge and he lets them do the job. And Mike Phelan's good because he's more experienced. He can be a good foil. Brian Kidd was always a great foil for Sir Alex Ferguson. And Kiddo was more popular with the players. But he could also go to both parties and he could say to a player, look, the manager's not happy with you. He's heard you were out last night. He's going to have a word with you later on. And he'd give him a heads up. But he could also go to the manager and say, look, he's not playing well. Uh, his partner's just lost the baby. Something, you know, th- these human issues which make which which oil the engine inside a club. And I think there's, there's good people working with him, Manchester United, at the moment. And if you've got people creating a positive atmosphere that all feeds in to an engine which is running quite smoothly and there's going to be um times when that engine doesn't work the team is not a championship win inside yet but i just hear a lot of positives and from the coaches lower down and 
the, the, I did a piece a couple of weeks ago for The Athletic where you've got Manchester lads coaching teams, lads who were streetwise footballers. Colin Little, I think he's coaching the 18s with Quinton Fortune, who was obviously a player. Colin was a non-league legend. My brother played up front with him for Altrincham. And he's a, he's a street footballer. He's a Withenshaw lad, but he's a streetwise Mancunian as well. And Manchester United, believe it or not, are based in Manchester. It's good to have that mix of local lads in as well on the coaching side. So I'm quite happy with the reports that I get back. Clearly, results will be everything. But I echo a lot of what Laurie's saying about there's a decent coaching staff there. One final note before we move on to, to subjects other. I want to talk about an article from the FX Sarah Shepherd about uh, the move that happens when a number two or an assistant manager goes from being a manager. There's been quite a few former Ferguson assistants or people in the Ferguson setup who've tried their hand at being a head coach and it hasn't quite worked out. Laurie, what do you think happened there? Yeah, I suppose it's just a different role, isn't it? I mean, as Andy mentioned, Brian Kidd was probably the most famous example for for United, um, you know, time in terms of him going to Blackburn and, you know, United won the treble that season and 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 I think Blackburn were relegated. So I, I, I'd always hesitate to say not a success as a number one because I suppose it's just you know there's managers all the time that that don't have successes, so it's not necessarily because they were a number two first that they they haven't done so. But I suppose it's a different skill set, as Andy was saying there, number twos often are that conduit between the players and the managers um, and to be a manager you have to be a bit of a bastard sometimes and it's you have to upset people you have to make ruthless decisions whereas a number two is more of a conduit so it's more about making sure that um, there is harmony in, in the squad and, and little messages are conveyed um, I used to cover Leicester uh, for the Daily Mail and um, Craig Shakespeare was an excellent number two for Nigel Pearson and then obviously the, the way things happened, Shakespeare became a manager, and to be fair, he, he had you know, decent success. I mean, he, he came in and, and was a storming um, success, really. Um, when you know, keeping them up and, and getting them to the Champions League quarterfinals, got the job off the back of that. But I always felt that probably his role was better as a number two. And obviously, we've now seen at Watford that they're having success again with with Nigel Pearson as that kind of authoritarian figure, more so. Craig Shakespeare as as a, a sort of happier go luckier kind of character, although he does have a bit of steel to him as, as a number two so I guess in, in broader terms that's why I'd say you should you point at Steve McLaren and say he had very good success as a manager you know albeit he gets criticised for the England job and, and various others um, so uh, Carlos Quiris obviously managed um, you know uh, at the World Cup so I don't think that it's necessarily a, a blanket if you're a num- number two you can't be a number one but I suppose it's just difficult to then take that step to become that kind of authoritarian figure Laurie's right with with a bit of a bastard um, Brian Kidd is probably the best example and Kieros too don't forget Kieros left Manchester United to manage Real Madrid I mean you can't turn that down from being United's assistant manager to being the Real Madrid manager look at it from Kiddo's perspective right and I knew him very well at that time when he was at Manchester United and his, he got offered a job where his salary would increase eightfold, right? Not that he was skin, but eightfold. Managing a Premier League team playing 20 minutes from his front door. A club with a reputation, Blackburn Rovers, for having money, for being stable. They'd built the ground. It was the perfect job in many ways. So Alex Ferguson didn't see it like that at all. He completely got the ump with him. He, he, he felt because Ferguson commanded and demanded loyalty. And this was in the treble season as well. So Kiddo was giving up a bit as well because he wasn't. He did half the treble season. And Kiddo went to Blackburn and he struggled. He floundered. 
he didn't get it right with the media. And I could see him, I always remember him saying, after a defeat, rubber dinghy men, rubber dinghy men, in a really strong Manchester accent. And Kiddo was always of the opinion that if you travelled south of Ardwick, you were in enemy territory. He's a real Mancunian. And this rubber dinghy man, his point was that he had players there who would be jumping out of the ship into the rubber dinghies at the ship going down. And he didn't want players like that. Now, I understood that as a Manchester lad, but I was thinking people will not have a clue what he's on about here. People beyond his estate will be struggling to understand what he's on about. And he, he just got eaten up by the media and he lost his job and he hasn't been a number one since. And Kiddo, in many ways, is a very good number two. Some some personalities lend themselves to being good number twos and some of them are ready to become good number ones. Jose Mourinho, when he was at Barcelona, started out as a translator, then he became a number two. And I, I Mourinho was a translator at Barcelona. Bobby Robson, who never learned Spanish, he would say something. And Mourinho would, would translate it into far more technical detail. And right. you're thinking, <laughs> you're thinking, Robson hasn't said that. Mourinho actually knows far more than his boss here. Because <laughs> he's, he's talking about the pressing and the, the, the guy running the channel and filling off off the number two. And you're thinking, Robbie, Bobby Robson just said, you know, we hope to win today. <laughs> and so, so it's quite entertaining to see the dynamics of it all and... Kieros, I went to see him in Tehran. He was a hero in Iran. He took Iran to two World Cup finals. He was a very, very good coach. But he wasn't Ferguson. And maybe you need a bit of time at a club to build up your bank of credit, which allows you to weather those storms. And Ferguson had done that after two or three years. One final question. Does Oli have a bit of a bastard about him? Andy? Yeah, he does. He does. He... um. You know, we might see the public smiley side of him, but I've spoken to him off the record on certain things where he's used language which he absolutely wouldn't use when he's talking in, in public. Look, he's been a successful manager at Mulder. That, that team, all right, people laugh at the Norwegian league, but did never come close to winning the league. He did very well there. He got eaten up at Cardiff. The jury's still out at Manchester United. I still think he's doing a decent job, but you have to have a hard side to you. You have to tell players... That they dropped, and here's a reason why. And then players are going to get the hump, and then players are going to go to their mates or their agent, and they're going to say, oh, "I'm not really having him, I'm not really having him," because personally they've got the hump, and Ollie's got to deal with all that. You wouldn't believe the number of Man United players who were scared of Sir Alex Ferguson, A-listers, 400, 500, 600 games for Manchester United players. They were scared of him. They feared him. Hard lads. They were scared of him. Now. Football's changed a lot and maybe fear is not uh, the tool that you can use so much now because society's changed an awful lot, but you need to steal. And I, and I do think he's got it. Laurie, you're the one who's in the press conferences every week. Does Ollie have a bit of a bastard about him? Yeah, I would definitely agree with Andy. I mean, I think you look at his decision-making is where it's been clearest. You know, you look at Alexis Sanchez, he has a row with Mason Greenwood in training and, you know, I think the decision had perhaps had already been made, but Solskjaer is ruthless and he says, right, you're not you're not going to be a part of my squad next season. And he's out, the, you know, he's out the squad. Um, you know, he's obviously loaned off to Inter. He's made extremely, um, you know, I suppose you would call it, you know, 
um, brutal decisions in, in those regards. And he does have a bit of devilment about him. I think he, he knows what he wants. He's got a very clear mind. So that then can translate into those decision making. And that is the crucial part of being a manager. I know that Van Persie had a bit of a pop at him for, for sort of smiling after defeat at Arsenal. Um, but then Ollie gave him a little bit back in return in the press conference, you know. And he's, I think his nature is that he's a, he's a pretty nice guy and he, he, you know, he wants to get along with people. But when it comes to football, um, he definitely does have that edge that you need. With football currently suspended, as part of our rebooted series, the Athletic is looking back at the 98-99 season, which of course is the season where Manchester United win the unprecedented treble. Each episode we go back and look at all the games United played 21 years ago. This time, it's a game that perhaps doesn't get mentioned a lot in the DVD packages and the glowing references. It's where Manchester United went to Leeds and drew 1-1. Andy, do you have any memories of this game at all? The fog has cleared to give us a beautiful spring Sunday morning at Ellen Road. Leeds were a good team. It was the first game after Turin, so we got back from Italy, I think, on on the Friday, and suddenly you've got Leeds away, and Leeds were a major rival to Manchester United. Leeds were fourth in the table. They'd won the league ahead of Manchester United in, in 1992. They had a cracking side. I remember seeing Harry Kuehl for the first time at Old Trafford, thinking he's a really good player. They had... Um, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. Here goes Kuehl again. He's a real problem. Hasselbank here. And this time it is in off the post. It's Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. And Leeds get the lead that they've been threatening since the game started. And again, Harry Kuehl set it all up. Lucas Radaby. Jonathan Woodgate, who joined Real Madrid. Alan Smith. They had a really, really decent side. And... David O'Leary's team and David O'Leary even as a manager were getting a lot of praise at the time I remember going to Ellen Road it being what Ellen Road's always like rough dangerous you absolutely do not announce that you're a Manchester United fan at Ellen Road I made that mistake on my first visit there as I walked alongside the Lowfield Road and shouted Manchester Bank Bank (laughs) I didn't finish the word Manchester and I was on the floor it's one of the few times I've been whacked at a game and I got in the ground and I swear 20 minutes into it, I was that dazed. I didn't know which way Manchester United were attacking. So Leeds was a rough old place, but to get a one-all draw away there was actually a very good result. It didn't seem it because any time a team dropped points was a bad thing in that title race. And United were second in the league still. They had a game in hand on Arsenal, but... It was a good result. Leeds, Leeds were really good that day. They, they really set about United at the start of the game. Yeah, you mentioned this game does finish one all with a draw. So United go into second place, one point off Arsenal. Arsenal had just beaten Middlesbrough the day before. But United had this game in hand. Laura, you've, you've followed quite a few uh, title races now. This game in hand, but you're a point behind. How the, Do you think that plays into how campaigns end? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think back to, to that time and, and I, I remember thinking that it was a decent point in that regard. You know, it was away at Leeds. You're sort of thinking, 
not not a bad point to pick up and obviously still in United's hands at that stage uh, but then also this sort of feeling that maybe they'd slipped up because it was such a neck and neck thing with Arsenal um, so you never quite know do you really um, how it's going to play out I mean you'd always rather have the points in the bag wouldn't you um, although there's been plenty of occasions where United have been um, you know games in hand and, and, and sort of um, trailing um, and eventually made it up obviously there's the, the famous draw at QPR um, that managed to take United top even though they played a couple of games more than Newcastle in that 95-96 title race but then they were streaking ahead of Arsenal 97-98 and, and that came back and um, you know, and, and ultimately Arsenal turned that one over so I think probably you'd always rather have the points uh, on the board wouldn't you um, yeah, rather than be the one that's um, the team sort of trying to scramble and, and keep up um, I covered the Leicester title win um, and they had the points on the board and Tottenham you felt they were always going to come and, and, and catch them but they just never quite could because the, the pressure was too much for them so um, I think in United sense that they, they'd certainly always fancied themselves once they got their noses in front around sort of March time or you know, February March time and, and they, they, they rarely re- re- relinquished the lead at that point. Andy what's your experience points on the board or would you wouldn't mind a game in hand? Yeah, you need the points on the board, but as as Alex Ferguson said after that game, because I've been re-reading it, um, you're going to drop points sometimes. United have played in Turin a few days previous against the best team in the world. You, you, no team wins every single game. And to go away to the team who were fourth in the table and get a draw, it's a good result. It, it, it just isn't points dropped. It's a really good result. And United would drop much more points that season, especially in the December which you could say, well, we've definitely dropped points there. Uh, a one-all draw away to that Leeds team. Very, very good Leeds team. And a team which Leeds fans hold in great affection, a team which would go on to reach the semi-finals of the European Cup. It was a good result. And for the fans, well, got back to Manchester in one piece. So that was a result as well. <laughs> I also want to talk about uh, the goal scorer. By bit, United just turning the screw. It's Keane, now York, Keane again, back post is bat, great save, but Cole has got it in, Andy Cole with the equaliser, Manchester United a level, but Andy Cole showed why he's such a top striker, he reacted like lightning. It was Andy Cole, it was the fifth year for the Cole-York partnership, how's Andy Cole reception now in sort of the Man United fan base at the time he wasn't beloved is that correct I would say he was um, I thought he was very much admired and I suppose you know he came for that record fee and it took a little bit of time to get going but you know the goals he scored for United over the years I think he's certainly held in in high regard and obviously he's ambassador for the club now Um, I mean I remember that season and and York coming in and and just the instant connection it seemed that Cole and York had between themselves obviously they were friends off the pitch and you know some of the moves you know that, that goal in the new camp you know, I love watching that back over and over the step overs, um, and you could just sense that they knew where the other one would be on the pitch, and and you could see they were enjoying themselves. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think Cole certainly you know stands high in terms of United strikers throughout the years because of what he achieved at the club and, and the number of goals that he scored. Andy, give me your view on uh, Andy. He's a top man uh, as a as a player. Uh, I found him to be quite difficult with the media. And he did get criticised at times because he didn't always put the chances away. I think history has been very kind to him. I think he's genuinely appreciated now. 
as a person, I think he's a great lad. I think he's an absolutely great lad. And I could give you a load of examples why. And I've got to know him. I've got to know him very well. I spoke to him for half an hour the other day. He's, he's had a lot of health issues. And he's always tried to remain as positive as he can. But a, a year ago, um, we did a bike ride for, to try and buy an ambulance in Manchester, from Barcelona to Manchester. And Giggs and Gary Neville were good enough to turn up at Old Trafford to meet us, which was great because they're very busy lads. And Andy Cole turned up as well. And Andy Cole's living in London now. And he took a train up from London. And Ryan and Gary, they met everybody. And then they went back, um, back home in Manchester. And Cole had just said... I'm here for as long as you want. And he stayed all night. And I'm like, well, you've got to get back to London. And people were just coming up to him all the time. And he had time for every single person there. And he wasn't getting paid to do it. He didn't need to do it. And he gets a free pass with me now because I really like him <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a person. I think he was a great footballer and spent a lot of time with him. Uh, I think he's a generous lad. I think he's reliable. I ghosted a column with him for five five years and... It was really reliable, and not every footballer, as Laurie will tell you, hmm. is ultra reliable. And he'd be ringing me saying, "You're going to ring me at eight o'clock, and it's ten past." <laughs> I like this. This is years <laughs> under Ferguson. This is, and uh, I, I think he's a top man. And his life story is incredible. This is a lad who grew up in Nottingham in a very tough environment where he couldn't go and watch his local team, Nottingham Forest, the European champions, because of the racism he expected to get going to watch his local team. And he came out, being a street footballer, and he's very good as a kid. His father was a miner in Nottingham at the time of the miners' strike. And his father refused to cross the picket line. And imagine being a black miner in Nottinghamshire in the early, in the early 80s. And... He took on all of these problems and he didn't burden his family with them. And it's only in later years and he's got to know and speak to his father about stuff like this. A father, by the way, from Jamaica who had no interest in football. So Andy would say like, yeah, I just scored against Juventus away last night or I've just <laughs> scored at Leeds away. I don't care, so he'd say, I want you to play cricket for the West Indies. And, and I love that. Because it just goes beyond the cliches of like, yeah, incredible, incredible. You know, my mum and dad were really happy. His dad didn't ever go and watch him play football. So, Coley, maybe you're asking the wrong person here. I think he's a top, top man. And I think he was a, I think he had a really, really good career as well. And he won the lot. Listen, he went to Barcelona away, took, took Barcelona apart with Dwight York, his partner in crime. And they're totally different, by the way. They are totally different personalities. And, and he won the treble. So that's it. You're just getting an A1, A, A star report from Andy Cole from me. <laughs> they have it. A star. Glorious. <laughs> Andy, I want to I want to get one more story from you. You so you just said you went to Allen Road and you got a whack. Uh, where do you rank Leeds in terms of clubs that don't like Manchester United? How do you top rank three. that sort of rivalry? Top, top three. three. Carl. It's top three, mate. It's it's. You could speak to people and say, and I can remember these debates in the fanzines. That it's who you hate most, and it would be like Liverpool, Manchester City, or Leeds, and people would be like, it's got to be Leeds. I remember going there in the seventies, but Leeds vanished in the eighties, and then they came back in the nineties, and it was a rough, rough place to go to. Liverpool have always been there. There's almost like a a grudging respect because they're a huge club because they've won all the trophies, they've won the European Cups, and Le Leeds fans would say. 
we won the European Cup in 1975, but actually they, they didn't win the European Cup in 1975. They might feel that they were cheated out of it and they probably were cheated out of it, but that definite Lancashire-Yorkshire rivalry, Manchester United taking the best players, McQueen, Jordan, Alan Smith, some fella, fella from Marseille called Eric. It's a vicious, <laughs> vicious rivalry. And I wrote a piece last year saying I'd love to see him back. I'd much rather be going to Old Trafford to watch Man United Leeds, I don't know how you feel, Laurie, than, than Man United against Bournemouth. And I got like a 90% reaction from Leeds. They miss us, look, they miss us, they want us back. But I had 10% going, you patronising Manchester, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> how dare you say that? We hate you, we hate you. And, and even then I had 10% of Man United fans saying, I never want them back, I want them to go bust, I want them to go down into non-league. <laughs> so it's vicious. It's vitriolic. Laurie, what's your perspective on Leeds United? Yeah, I totally agree with Andy. I mean, I would probably say, you know, you go Liverpool 1, and for me, Leeds 2, and then, you know, that'd be above Man City. So if Leeds get back in the Premier League, then that would be, you know, become a real um, fixture to look out for. I only went to Ellen Row once, uh, and it was actually the last uh, Premier League game between the sides. I was just looking up then um, at Ellen Road, and, and Roy Keane scored a late winner. Um, in in sort of 2003, and me and my dad went, and we went in the McDonald's across the way from from Ellen Road, and, and obviously didn't do what Andy did, and, and kept our accents very much to ourselves because you can detect a, a, a slight difference from obviously Yorkshire to Lancashire. Although I went to uh, Leeds Uni, um, so I, I don't know if that oh, sort really, of, uh, yeah, yeah. So I, some people <laughs> it, think it's I've a got good a bit city, of, Laurie, isn't it? It's a good I city. I absolutely Leeds. love the city. I had a, such a great time at Leeds. I went there four years in the end, and um, had an absolutely brilliant time. Um, but it, it did mean that, you know, if I went to the to watch United in Europe, for example, so there was one time when we got knocked out by Benfica, I had uh, sort of four, I was on my own as well, you know, nobody really fancied United in my sort of friendship group. I, I did English, so, you know, make up your own uh, sort of minds. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I had like sort of four, you know, old school Leeds fans that were just absolutely reveling in United going out of Europe early and I just, yeah, I couldn't do anything, you know, what, what can, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying anything back to them, you know, I'm just sort of walking out the, out out the door very quietly and, and back up to my student halls but uh, so maybe that sort of fuels my personal um, sort of thinking on it all um, in terms of Leeds but it was, it was it, it, that atmosphere I, I do remember it you know it was properly vicious you had Leeds fans calling United fans scum vice versa and, and you're absolutely loving it at that age I was you know young kid with my dad and, and kind of bring it on you know you wanted to be hated in a weird way because that's what football's about obviously there's, there's lines but you know football is about tribalism and it's about passion and and Leeds and United certainly encapsulated that for me. We we go to Leeds and, and there'd be songs like um, they'd just sing scum at us and we'd sing sheep shaggers to Leeds. We'd sing all Yorkshire men shag sheep. We'd sing who's the champions now scum. It, the list is absolutely endless. <laughs> and and at times it did go beyond the pale. It really did. Um, but but I, I like the edge to that atmosphere. And there was another song, Leeds as a city is a mighty fine place, but their football team is an effing disgrace. And you know, thousands of people would sing this. But I started this calendar year. I took my family to Leeds for New Year because it's, it's a good city. And I said on Twitter, I'm going to Leeds, any recommendations? I just got a torrent of abuse from Man United fans saying, what on earth are you going there for? And one of the reasons was, um, I, I know a lad, I've known him for a long time, and, and he's risen from being someone who, who, who hoped to get into football to being an assistant manager at Leeds United, right? And he's a lad from Argentina and he's working for his hero, Marcelo Bielsa. 
And he would say to me like, um, yeah, you know, maybe come over to Manchester and what about Man United? I'm like, listen, just don't go there. <laughs> Do not go there. Just enjoy your job, mate. You're working under a great manager. You're working at a great club, but do not advertise the fact that you know you you go to Manchester to watch football. Just stay, stay in Leeds, stay on your turf, because there is a vicious rivalry. And you're from Argentina. Let me say it's River Boca. It, it is it is that vicious. But I miss them. I want them back. I hope they come up. Not just because uh, my friend professionally. I hope that he does well. I want to go to Welland Road again. I miss that buzz. Yeah, to be honest, Andy, I um I agree um with you. I mean, I think having Leeds back in the Premier League would be much better for you know, not only Man United but also the Premier League in general. You want teams that are well supported, that you know where the fans are massively passionate. And I think any post you write about Leeds, you, you get an impression of of just how passionate that fan base are. I mean, I, I did a, a story uh, last year on the on the difficult financial situation that they'd be in if they didn't get promoted, um, and I got sort of dogs abuse, you know, for, for, for supposedly shit shit stirring it or, or whatever. Telling the truth, God only knows. <laughs> Well, well, basically, I mean, you, you look at it um, sort of now, and, and it's this sort of similar situation again. I think with this the coronavirus crisis and, and how that might affect their their finances. But um, but but the point sort of remains is that you know you can see how much support there is for them there. You know how much passion there is, and I just you know it'd be great to see them back in the Premier League so that you could have a bit of that rivalry and you know a bit of a dust up. This athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic, fill in a style quiz and tell us about your personal style, budget, size and shape and your clothing wants and needs. A personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each handpicked especially for you from a selection of over 100 brands, including established names and up and coming designers. What's next is you try on everything at home style it with other items in your wardrobe and then you simply pay for what you love and send back the rest for your stylist time you pay a charge of just 10 pound which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy remember it's try before you buy delivery and returns are free for both ways and you don't need a subscription to sign up so to get started with stitch fix today and to support our podcast go to stitchfix.co.uk slash the athletic right now that's s-t-i-t-c-h-f-i-x.co.uk forward slash athletic gentlemen what can you tell us about any potential transfer news from inside and around old trafford we've spoken at sancho kane and Grealish a little bit but now edward would said something on record yeah well he's he's said something on record i suppose to just make sure that everyone's expectations are managed which uh, you know is understandable some people might have a pop and say well you, you're just uh, setting the scene for us to to not bring players in but I think people have to be aware of the current situation and the fact that this coronavirus crisis has changed you know society and and football so you're not going to see the mega mega money transfers that you might have done this summer from from certain clubs um you know I think he's just sort of making that clear I mean it was interesting that he went on the record um speaking about transfers in that way uh clearly he wanted to get that message out there it was it was for a fans forum so he does this um discussion with with fans forums um quite regularly and I think it's a good thing that he does do that so these quotes came out uh, in terms of just making sure that People who are aware that I suppose you know United aren't um, you know uh, incubated from the difficulties that will arise from from football being postponed. Um, I still think that United are in a, a good position. You know, in general, uh, once we do get back to it, um, I suppose it's just difficult. Any name that we sort of say, you know, y- y- you get. Um, 
it gets picked up by whoever, you know, people are desperate, aren't they, for, for sort of transfer news. It's probably the most exciting bit about transfer story, about, about football news stories, um, really transfers. But um, I'd always sort of be guarded about, you know, putting out too much information on a transfer because it can change, you know, from, from day to day and week to week. Um, so there's certainly discussions being held by United, but um, I think we're a, a way away from anything being realised, not least because the transfer window, I don't know, when it's going to be open for how long, you know, we, we just don't know that kind of stuff yet. Andy, Manchester United and transfer window and transfer rumors are its own industry. Uh, there's a universe out there where Wesley Schneider is playing alongside Nicholas Gaitan at Old Trafford. Um, how did how do these things sort of start? With, you know, a club of Carl, United sides. Absolutely mental. It is mental. It is you know if you na- if you name a player then you just see it bouncing around on social media and you have people who are obsessed, utterly obsessed by transfers to the point that some of them, I think, wouldn't mind if United actually stopped playing games and just traded players instead. I think they're that into it and I get why people are excited when football clubs sign new players. It's it's a, a glimpse into a potential brighter future and I can remember, especially when I was younger, being really excited. I can also remember wasting hours waiting for Alan Shearer to sign for Manchester United and thinking, ne- never again, there, there's, there's, there's other things in life, there's more important things in life. And, well, how does it happen? You've got stories coming from agents who like their clubs to be linked, like their players to be linked with clubs like Manchester United. You've got wishful players who might tell you stuff because they too want to play for Manchester United. You might get information from a club it, it can come from all different areas and I'm, I've become really guarded about it as a journalist you're on a hiding to nothing that it can be not worth your while even mentioning names I was told of a player last week who wants to play for Manchester United the club wanna, the club know all about it um, he's in there reckoning and I just think if I put his name out there if he doesn't end up signing, you're just on a hide into nothing because you just get people who completely lose all um, idea of context and nuance and, yeah, well, you said he was going to sign. And you've not even said that. You've just said that a club was was looking at a player or maybe a club was interested in a player or maybe there'd been communication between the player's agent. And a lot of transfers do not go through for many, many reasons. You can look at players who United have tried to sign over the years, even players who've wanted to join Manchester United, they fall down for many, many reasons. So, and yet, when you do transfer stories, they get more hits and impressions than any other stories. And it's, yeah, well, Mitten says this, or Whitwell says this, or he's got to be wrong, <laughs> because you get very definite, angry, rabid, often anonymous opinions. So... I'm, I'm honestly, I just think it's sometimes easier not to write them. Wesley Schneider would have been good if Man United, wouldn't yeah, he? Yeah, I mean, so, some of these stories, Carl, I mean, there, there are elements of truth in them. You, um, Cesc Fabregas was a target for Manchester United. He had indicated to Manchester United that he would join the club if Barcelona wanted to sell him. David Moyes spoke to Cesc Fabregas. He made the call on the the 6th of August from Gloucester Services. You know, these things happened and it never comes out at the time. But it's never clear-cut because who were the selling club? Barcelona. Well, the sporting side of Barcelona, they wanted to keep Cesc Fabregas because he was a very good player. The economic side 
they wanted to sell him because they knew that Manchester United have got a lot of money. So you can report what you know. And in that, that situation, I was privileged because I knew what was going on on both sides of it. But there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And often in football, there are two versions of the truth. There really are. There's And, and, and as a journalist, you've got to decipher what is the, the actual truth. And I remember writing about Ander Herrera joining Manchester United. And my source was a, a really, really good one. And I said, he's going to join Manchester United. And when he didn't join Manchester United because of a mishap on the final day when he was going to supposed to join them, you get all sorts of abuse. You said he was going to join. Well, well, he was. You know, he's planning to fly to Manchester tomorrow. The 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 plane's been reserved. Yeah, but you're a disgrace. You're not reliable. You're not reliable. And you're just like, do you need this in your life? Actually, no. You you don't need it in your life. And then a year later, when he signs, nothing. And and I'll give you one final example. (laughs) A good contact of mine in Holland said um, United are gonna they're they're gonna sign a lad called Daily Blind from Ajax. Uh, I'm told it's done, and it's a good a good contact, a really really good contact. And Daily's been with us today, and he said his goodbyes. Right, this was on the Sunday, so I wrote on the Monday pretty strongly. Daily Blind for Man United, and when by the Wednesday. He hadn't signed. And when by the Wednesday, Daily Blind's agent went on radio and said, we've had no contact with Manchester United. And I knew that was not true. I absolutely knew it wasn't true. I got loads of abuse. You said Daily Blind was going to sign. And when on the Saturday he did sign, silence. Absolute <laughs> silence. So why even enter into this world? You know, sometimes you get this information and you just think, if it happens, that'll be nice. And maybe age, maybe age teaches you that. Do, do, are you above retweeting those stories that you did get right, though, Andy? Do you not, you know, bring people's attention to the the the, you know, the, the times that you do call it correct? Well, what happened with the the blind one was someone had a real go at me. Anonymous, they're all anonymous. So I went back to him on the Saturday afternoon and said, "You've called me a liar. You've called me a disgrace." And what you then get is a big back down. Oh, sorry, mate. I'd had an argument with my girlfriend. I once met you out. Once met you outside the ground in 1997. You're a really nice lad. And you're thinking, you were you were pouring abuse onto me the other day, and and that's again that's the social social media world. But journalists are going to get yeah. stuff right and they're going to get they're going to get stuff wrong. I was told by a really really good source that. Arturo Vidal was going to join Manchester United, and I, and I wrote it pretty strongly. And United were in for him, um, but but he didn't sign. Yeah, but you said that was going to happen. No, it didn't. So I was speaking to somebody the other day, and, and Thiago Alcantara came up into conversation as you know that was all agreed. And then David Moyes came in and, and didn't fancy him. You know, it was so agreed. That didn't happen. It was agreed. Um, so if you get the information yeah. as a journalist from a good source, Laurie, and you're told it's agreed, you're going to write it, aren't you? But until yeah. until they've actually signed, then. Well, the, Bru- the Bruno Fernandez one in, in January was, you know, the most recent example where, you know, you had, you know, uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Mike Phelan go out and actually watch him in person, so you could see the the interest was there and the negotiations were ongoing. But that could have gone either way at any point if United hadn't wanted to actually push the button on that certain figure that they they felt you know able to do so. You know, negotiations can can go either way. And, and to be fair, I suppose the Burnley result perhaps um, you know hastened the, the need to, to get him in. But yeah, could have gone either way really that one. You get brinkmanship between the two parties. It's a form of negotiation, and also them them two parties. 
they can use the media as well. I spoke to a director of sport in Lisbon at the time it was all going through, and he's like, no, we're not prepared to sell. The, the, the offers are, have not been sufficient. And you're thinking, well, you, you, on the balance of probability and using common sense, you know that they need to sell because you've done your job and you've spoke to people, and you know that United want to buy, and you sense it's going to go through, but until it actually goes through. And then you get complete left-field ones, Anderson, bang, signed. Nanny, bang, signed. And no one no one knew about them. And I remember July 2011 getting a message on Twitter. Hi, Andy, I'm a big United We Stand reader. Just to say that my best mate, Phil Jones, is going to sign for Man United this morning, right? So I retweeted that. And I probably wouldn't do that now because this I'd only been on Twitter for a year. And then I had all the journalists going, Who's this reader? Is he reliable? But I didn't know him. But he was he was he was right, you know. <laughs> but if you if you if you got that now, um, I'd probably make contact with him and, and try and establish how credible the source was. That's for this week on Talk Levels Readers. I want to push you towards our ninety day free trial on the Athletic right now. It's theathletic.com forward slash Man United Pod. If you are not currently subscribed, please subscribe. I think there's some really really good stuff out there. Generally, I'm not even biased. Um, other than that I want to say thank you to Laurie cheers Carl and thank you once again to Andy thanks Carl thanks Laurie Uh, and thank you again listener for joining us for another episode of Talk of the Devils podcast that's a Manchester United podcast brought to you by The Athletic we'll see you next week